into the theology pit. Theology pit. You're falling in the theology pit. Everybody and welcome back to The Theology Pit. This is Theology out of Pittsburgh and not to be confused with The Bottomless Pit because you know what we say, when you fall into a bottomless pit, you die of dehydration. I'm, of course, your friendly neighborhood host, podcaster, seminarian, Samson Kovach, coming to you once again on uh, the eve of this new year moving into 2019. So, I, uh, I have some preaching I'm going to be doing here. Um... In the next in the next few weeks, actually, and uh, I've been doing some research on it, and I decided to do a theology pit episode. I'm like, I haven't done one in a while. I really need to get back onto this, and I need to do this. And it's helpful to kind of, oh, you know, walk through and work out uh, some of the oh, oh, some of the things that you know, you're studying and you're going to be preaching on in order to, you know, whenever you do it, you catch mistakes. And so that's what I'm going to do today. And today we're going to be looking at the book of Esther. Okay. We're going to be talking about the book of Esther and looking at, you know, is there even really a point to this book? This book has a very interesting background to it. Okay. Um, the interesting background to it is it wasn't it wasn't readily accepted by the reformed christian community they had some reservations about it and i want to talk about like what some of those reservations are and you know what this kind of means for us so you know the book of esther here here's Here's the reason why people had you know some issues with it. Here's some facts. If you don't know what the book of Esther is, it's found in the Old Testament. It comes right after Nehemiah. It is a post-exilic book, or I guess, I guess no, it's actually an, a book while in exile. Um, you know that that the the Jewish people were in. And this is significant. But here's some uh, some some facts about the book. Um, the first, there's no mention of God at all in the book of Esther. Um, it's not mentioned in the New Testament. And I don't mean that the book itself is not mentioned in the New Testament. I mean that it, it's, it's not quoted from, it's not referenced. Uh, it's not found among the Dead Sea Scrolls, the uh, Qumran community, the, the, the Essenes. There may be you know, some reasons for that, but um, it's, it, it's just not there. The festival of Purim is celebrated, and it comes from the book of Esther, but this is a festival, a celebration that is not instituted by God. And this is one of the more interesting ones. The book was one that the Nazis forbid the Jews from reciting in the concentration camps during World War II on the threat of immediate death. So what is it about the book of Esther that gives so much hope to the Jewish people and at the same time strikes fear and hatred into those who persecute them? Because, I mean, the book of Esther, it's, it, it's a quick read. I mean, if you want to, you know, pause this and go ahead and, and read it, it probably wouldn't take you more than you know, 20 minutes. Um, you know, it's it's 
nine and a half chapters. The you know, tenth chapter is pretty small. I'll, I'll, I'll sum it up, you know, for us in a, in a minute here. But um, it it reads it in in a narrative uh, format. But the story itself is is kind of odd in the way that um, it's not about a chastened people turning back to Yahweh. Okay, the enemies themselves are not afraid of God. They're afraid of the Jews, of the Jewish people. Um, chapter 8, verse 17, it says, And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves to be Jews, for the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. So, you don't have the enemies here feeling, fearing Israel's God. Okay, God does not directly intervene in the story of Esther. Now, people in the story of Esther, in the book of Esther, they mourn and they fast, but they don't pray. So, why is this in our Bible? I mean, honestly, what about this really proclaims the glory of God? Before I answer that question, of course, let's let's do an overview of the book just just so we can get kind of an outline here of what's going on. All right, so chapter one, and if uh, if you've never read Esther, this is going to be a real quick uh, summary of each chapter. So in chapter one, we start. There's a drunken king. Okay, he's he's partying. He actually cares more about partying than he does about ruling. And during one of these parties, he um, asked the queen to basically embarrass and humiliate herself. He, um, you know, he's, he's there with all the guys, um, you know, leaders that, that, you know, he's, he's appointed and, uh, you know, they've been partying for a week. I think it is. And during that, he requests that the queen comes wearing nothing but her crown. And, uh, she absolutely refuses. And, you know, first the king's just you know kind of ho humming about it, like you know what's going on. I'm the I'm the king here, but it's all these guys around him that are just like, huh? If the queen can treat the king this way, well then I guess every wife can behave this way to her husband and disobey him. And you know, in um, verse seventeen. You know, it says uh, in chapter one, um, for the matter concerning the queen will spread to all the women, leading them to treat their husbands with contempt, saying, when queen, when King Ahasuerus gave orders to bring Queen Vishni, or Vashti uh, into his presence, she would not come. Oh, oh, oh. oh we can't have that, right? So, uh, King, you need to do something about this. So chapter two, um, you know, the king decides, fine, bring me some, some women. I'll, you know, I'll marry a bunch of, I'll have a bunch of concubines. That's what I'll do. And, you know, so he chooses, you know, Esther becomes the fairest in the land, right? You know, they're rounding up all the, all the girls and, you know, they, um, bring them all into the palace and they are, you know, pampered for six months, you know, in preparation, they you know, get to spend one night with the king, 
Uh, and, you know, Esther impresses him and everything. So, um, Mordecai, who's Esther's uncle, uh, overhears a plot by some of the eunuchs that work for the king to attack the king. Okay. And he gets word to Esther. And Esther then informs the king of this plot. And it's it's foiled. Uh, the eunuchs are, you know, captured more or less in the act and um and they're executed. Okay. And the king records this in um in his chronicles, in, in the chronicles of his kingdom, uh, that Mordecai did this. Now in chapter three, uh we meet uh someone named Haman. And uh, you know, Haman works very close with the king. He's one of his um, you know, one of the well, you could say kind of governors, I, I, I suppose. Um, but uh, when he goes about, he goes about with the authority of the king. Now, Mordecai refuses to bow down to the king's servants. And when Haman you know, keeps seeing Mordecai and he won't bow down to him, he gets irritated about it. And within the story, you have, you know, every so often the king gives one of these um, governor type people uh, the opportunity to you know, create a law, do something, and um, and and you know he gives them his insignia ring to do it. So Haman takes the opportunity and decides that because of what Mordecai has done, he's going to attack the Jews because Mordecai refused to bow down to him. So all the Jews, he wants all the Jews to be killed. So, um, in, in, in completely unprovoked, he decides to write this edict that on a certain day. Everybody is to attack every single Jew in within the king's you know kingdom within his within his reign, um, and he and and it's going to be carried out. So Mordecai finds out in chapter four. Mordecai finds out about you know Haman's decree, and you know begins mourning sackcloth and ashes, and um, you know uh, just refusing to. Uh, to eat or take care of himself, and he's you know outside the the, the gates of the uh, of the um. Oh, I can't. I, what can you think of not, not kingdom? But you know where the king is outside the, the palace. There we go. Um, Esther, you know, sees this and wants to know why is he behaving in such a way. So he sends a. She sends out one of the eunuchs to ask him. They they report back and say you know and tell him what's going on. And so um, Esther decides that she's going to approach the king. Now, you can't just approach the king, okay? Even if you're a concubine or whatever, it's it's not seen as proper. You could be executed for it. Unless when you approach, um, he extends his scepter and, you know, uh, you would touch it. And then that means that you are accepted into uh, the king's court and he will hear you. So, um, yeah, he really likes Esther finds favor with her and because of this he you know will hear her out um and so uh in chapter five this is where um she's you know uh, the king accepts her and um you know she says uh hey i want to have dinner with you and um i want to have dinner with you and Haman. and so you know they have dinner and uh you know, King, and it's, it, I mean, said to be King Xerxes, you know, um, uh, officially in the annals of, of history here. Um, 
And and so the king is like, okay, well, what do you want? Like, what's your request? And she said, uh, you know what? I want to have another dinner party with you and Haman again. And they say, okay. And so, you know, Haman goes home and, of course, brags to his family that all this great stuff is going on. Well, in chapter six, um, the king can't sleep. And, he, you know, so he has the royal records read back to him and um, of, of what's happened recently. And the story of what Mordecai, you know, did um, by warning him and, and, you know, potentially saving the king's life, um, he's reminded of it. So he decides uh, that he is going to honor Mordecai in some way. And so he asks Haman what should be done to someone who the king has found favor with. And Haman thinks that he's talking about him, you know, because in, in the entire story, Haman's all about himself. And Haman says, "Oh, uh, you should you know put him on your best horse and you know dress him up and have him paraded around the city and you know all this stuff." And blah, blah, blah. So the king says, "All right, Morde- uh, all right, Haman, you do that to Mordecai." And so Haman is then forced to uh, trot Mordecai around, you know, and yeah, you know, this guy that he hates. And but he's he's thinking pretty much the whole time, well, you know, this guy's going to get his on that day. So chapter seven, Esther dines with the king and Haman again. This time uh, she reveals that um, the Jews have been sold to destruction by Haman and that she herself is a Jew. And, you know, and Haman is just like, you know, freaking out over this. The king is completely upset that, you know, the this woman that he finds a lot of favor with that he really likes and everything an edict went out in his name to, to do this so the king just like storms off you know real quick from the dinner table Haman doesn't know what to do and you know Esther is like lounging on on a couch and he just like throws himself at her to beg for his life well while he's doing this the king returns and it looks like Haman is making advances towards him and the king just freaks out and says, I can't believe this. Not only are you trying to kill her with an edict that I sent out, but now you're actually making advances towards her. And, you know, so Haman had this gallows made that he wanted to, to impale Mordecai on for everyone to see. Well, he gets impaled on it. In chapter eight, um, the king then makes an edict to protect the Jews by giving them permission to defend themselves and attack those armies which come against them because, you know, you can't rescind, you know, what you've already said. And um, Haman's estate is given to Mordecai and Esther. So, chapter 9, the Jews then prevail over their enemies and Esther asks for an extra day for the Jews to fight. Okay, uh, Purim is then instilled to remember as a festival to remember the preservation brought by Esther and Mordecai. And in chapter 10, Mordecai is promoted to the second highest office of the land and that prospers and he prospers very well because of that. Now, that's the that's the, this is the book of Esther. That's the story of Esther. And we can understand why this time is remembered and celebrated, but the question is you know, does it belong in the Bible? You know, that's that's another aspect here. There were many times that Jews defended themselves in history 
that we don't have recorded in our Bibles. Okay? And the way in which Purim is recounted is almost in a, a sitcomish kind of way. Okay, audience participation uh, is is encouraging this. It's almost done like a play. If you if you've ever been to or you ever remember like uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show, um, and if you ever went to one of those events, it's big on audience participation. Sometimes you will have people while the movie is playing acting out like on a small stage in front. The audience is shouting things at the screen and just you know they're throwing things and it's just like it's a big like festival type carnival atmosphere while the story is going on. Um, I mean there were books that were put out for the Rocky Horror Picture Show that, you know, I remember in, in high school, um, you know, we would get and we would read that would, you know, tell what the, how the audience is to participate, you know, doing this. And there'd always be these midnight showings and, you know, and, uh, it was, um, so think of Purim as like that. Think of it in that manner. And so people would, would dress up and they would act out, you know, each, each of these parts. And it was done with like masquerades and a lot of drunkenness. Okay. They would be booing at Haman and cheering for Mordecai. And, you know, they would drink to excess and they would do this. This was encouraged. Okay. This is all encouraged. It's not a solemn event. It's not something of reverence and like candles and let's let us remember. It's not like, it's not like remembering the Maccabean revolt of, of Hanukkah, you know, and, and, you know, in that celebration, this is something uh, com- a completely different way of, of remembering. Um, the biblical scholar Adele Berlin, um, commenting on Purim, says, quote, The Talmud encourages one to get so drunk that one cannot distinguish between cursed be Haman and blessed be Mordecai, unquote. So, this is like a, a, a drunken carnival type of, of thing. And, um, Purim would usually fall on, on the Sabbath day. And some people think that that's why the, the Essenes did not celebrate it. And the dead, the, the people that you know, wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, the Qumran sect, um, of the Dead Sea, uh, because they were, um, w- waiting for like their, their particular type of hermeneutic, their biblical interpretation was known as Pesher, where they saw that the end times were being fulfilled in their day and that it was coming to pass, you know, with everything that was happening, you know, was, was happening for, uh, the, re- the return of the Lord. The, the the son of man, you know, spoken of in Daniel. And so they didn't have a copy of Esther because why? If if you're not going to use it, that's one that's one theory. Now, this is the story is a comedy. In in, in theater you have um, tragedies and you have comedies. Tragedies and sad comedies and happy on a good note. So this would be considered a, a comedy because uh, there's a, a, a happy ending to it. But it has an over-the-top cast of characters when you think about it, okay? Ahasuerus, the king, also you know known as Xerxes I, he's a total buffoon in this, okay? Um, Mordecai and Esther are one-dimensional and completely unrealistic. Haman is an erratic egomaniac. And then you have that a Jewish minority kills over 75,000 enemies in one day. You know, when we look at it from this point of view, it really looks like this book is not useful 
I mean, when was the last time you were in church and, and the book of Esther was done in such a manner, was remembered in such a, a, a feast? I mean, at Easter time, you know, you will have uh, Seder meals uh, that a lot of uh, Christians do, a lot of Christian churches do, where they're going through the Passover liturgy. And I've, I've partaken in them. It's very interesting uh, and I mean, there is, of course, you know, wine consumption there, and I think there's like four cups or something you have to drink, and it's something like eight ounces per cup or whatever. Lots, of, you know, there's food. Uh, food is not very good, by the way, because you're remembering suffering, so you're eating bitter herbs and you dip in vinegar. I mean, it's not, it's not the tastiest meal, but it's 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 interesting, especially if you know uh, the the passion narrative and um and and you're a Christian and you understand. What the what the gospel is in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, all the all the symbolism and all the imagery is very powerful and uh, very relevant. But Esther, we don't do like this. Yeah, I've, I've never even I've never even heard of a church having a a Purim event in in such a manner where there's just complete drunkenness and rowdiness and you know all, all this that's that's going on. Now, Martin Luther, the great reformer felt that it should be taken out of the canon and that it should be put in the Apocrypha and it should be in there with, you know, first and second Maccabees and, uh, the Esdras and Tobit, some of the other, uh, books that are in the, the Apocrypha or the Deuterocanonical books. Um, you know, some, some that the, uh, Roman Catholic church has in their Bibles. They don't have all of the Apocrypha in, in their Bibles, but you know, they have a large majority of it. John Calvin uh, did not write a commentary on Esther. So what are we then to do with Esther? You know, I mean, why am I, why am I talking about this? How do we find God in Esther? Okay, what we have to understand is that this book sits in the middle of a people in time. And I think that we need to understand the context. Not the book of Esther, not that context, because a lot of times, whenever you want to find context when you're reading scripture, people say, use the 2020 rule, have 2020 vision, uh, 20 verses before, 20 verses after, whatever you're reading. Usually, it's a good rule of thumb that it w- will give you context, most generally, that'll give you context. But the, the story of Esther is the story of God working through his people up to this point in time. Now, Esther occurs about 50 years after the proclamation of Cyrus. And if you don't know when that is, um, let me spell it out for you here. You have the Babylonian exile that takes place. Okay. Um, This would be during the um, uh, book of Jeremiah uh, and and the book of, um, well, yeah, I think Ezekiel. Daniel is, you know, like right after, uh, but, but you have the Babylonians that, you know, destroy Jerusalem and the uh, Jews go in exile. Um, 70 years later, the Persians then gain control of the land from the Babylonians. Cyrus is the, the Persian king. And the way that the Persians did stuff is they allowed um, the people that they conquered to have their religion you know, and basically kind of keep their way alive. Think of the way, like, um, uh, the, uh, uh, who was it? The, um, the Huns, 
the Mongols, the way that they like, you know, ruled where, you know, they would take over a place and just say, hey, you guys can keep what you what you want. Romans did this too. You know, Rome did this too. Um, you know, keep your your traditions and all that stuff. As long as it keeps you happy, we just rule you. You pay taxes to us. You fight in our armies. Yeah, that's like that type of thing. Um, and so, you know, the proclamation that Cyrus gives is that the Jews are allowed to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. You know, they could they could reestablish everything if they want. Go go ahead. You know, he doesn't have a problem with it. He doesn't have a problem like the Babylonians did. So, 50 years pass, and we're now at like roughly 470 BC. Okay. The Jews that went back to Jerusalem, there were only about 50,000 of them. And in Ezra, the book of Ezra, chapter 2, he gives us that number. He, he uh, Ezra writes around the same time as Nehemiah does. Um, they're both like, oh, I want to say 440s, 450s BC. And um, so they're, they're right after Esther also, if Esther's, if Esther's about 470. And um, they, the Jews that went back, they, you know, to rebuild, they had it kind of hard because um, you have to remember everything's in ruins. Like the Babylonians destroyed everything. So the temple's in ruins. Um, there's no, no crops. I mean, there's no farms. Nothing's planted. There is no uh, economy. They have no temple, of course. There are land disputes between the people of, of who gets what land. And the neighboring nations are hostile to them. Now, if they would have stayed in Persia... Um, in Persia, you can keep your religion minus, you know, having the temple. Um, but even those who went back to like rebuild the temple after a while, they started to not care because, you know, they were building up their economy and, and they were building themselves houses that are, you know, it's translated as like paneled houses and the, it's the same descriptive word that is used of the way Solomon built his temples. Okay, so they're kind of being described as they're spending more money on their own houses than they are on the house of God. Now, you know, the, the Jews that, that a lot of them, you know, wanted to stay in, in, in Persia or the ones that did stay in Persia, um, there was a good economy there. I mean, they could, uh, they, they could live. They had probably had bagel shops going on and, you know, they're living the good life. They're, they're, they're totally complacent. They're, it's the next generation that came up. The, the ones that I mean, a lot of them, you know, younger, think about, you know, 40s and, and younger have families. Now, they've never been to Jerusalem. They've only heard stories of it, and they have a thriving business, a thriving economy. They're raising their family. There's, you know, uh, more or less like peace in the land. You want me to pick up and, and go out to where there's nothing and struggle and have people wanting to come against me and fight and, and possibly... Are, are you serious? So the people that did go, after a while you know, are very lax in building the temple and they had to have a, you know, had to be reminded and they, you know, got a fire going through them and they rebuilt the second temple, but, um, it was not to the same grandeur as the first one. And there were people that were old enough to remember the first one, um, you know, remembering the second one, because, you know, there's only about a 70 year uh, difference there. Uh, so you can have people that were still alive and they lamented that it was nothing like the first temple. And so, these are the Jews that went back and they're kind of complacent and building bigger houses for themselves and that sort of thing. The people that are even more complacent that really are, um, 
You know, I mean, if, okay, let's say those are the half-hearted ones. So what do you think the ones that are in Persia are like? I mean, they're even more lackadaisical to their faith. Okay. All right. This is Esther and Mordecai. This is where they live. This is where they're from. Okay. Esther is so unlike a Jew that she could pass as a Gentile without causing any suspicion. You know, I mean, she's living in the king's courts for you know however long in with the um, with with the concubines with the the harem like everything is going to. She's not insisting on dietary laws. She's not insisting on any of this stuff. And even though she's not insisting on it, she is. Uh, I mean, okay. Here's the difference. We read the book of Daniel. Okay, Daniel becomes a vegetarian so as not to break the dietary laws, and 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 you know he was praying constantly and daily. You know the problem in, in Daniel is that you know he wouldn't you know pray to the uh, you know to the, to the king to Nebuchadnezzar to the statue. I believe it was Nebuchadnezzar. Um, Esther, from from the book, yeah, she wasn't even praying. Okay, so we have Esther who's not praying. Daniel is, and and the way in which we see the work of God is not through his people, but it's actually in spite of them. Okay? See, God is always faithful to his word. And when he instructs for something to take place, he will bring it to pass through his people. Okay, whether they like it or not. All right? So God has said something that makes Esther extremely valuable and extremely important. And we're going to see after this break exactly what that is. Thanks for listening to The Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. samsonstick.com. Thanks again. Now back to the show. Okay, so we have um, God's promise and His command that happened in Scripture. You have to remember that the... Old Testament in our Bibles, it's not it's not arranged chronologically. Okay, technically, with the Jewish people, the Old Testament ends with um, the uh, first and second Chronicles. Okay, but everything else, all the other books, like the the prophets, they're in the midst of a lot of that. Um. You the arrangement the way people that arrange things because they're you know trying to of course tell a, a story think of this like the the editors of your Bible in the way that the books are arranged they're trying to tell you something you know in the New Testament uh, Matthew was not the first thing written in the New Testament there there are debates on you know what it is whether it was you know the letter to the Ephesians you know, that Paul wrote 
um, maybe Corinthians, maybe Galatians, very, very early ones. The Gospels, you know, came a little bit later. Um, but the way that they're enra- arranged is for a, a particular purpose here. So um, this might seem like a non sequitur, but stay with me here. It's all going to come together with Esther in the end here. Um, we need to do a little bit of scriptural investigation to find out why Esther actually matters so much. So, in we got to go back to the Exodus here. Okay, so a second book in your Old Testament, and in Exodus seventeen, uh, what we have is the Israelites have come out of Egypt, and you know they are you know heading to the Promised Land, and the Amalekites attack the Israelites. They see this giant caravan of people. Think of them as like easy pickings, and so in a totally unprovoked way the Amalekites attack the Israelites. And this is the story, if you remember, of um, you know Moses holding up his hands, and when he would hold his hands up, um, the, the Israelites would be winning the battle, and you know when he couldn't hold them up anymore and they would drop down, like the Israelites would be losing you know, the battles. And so, like, you know, they would, people would hold his hands up, like, you know, to, to help him, and so they could win. But that's that story, okay? And they win. And in uh, chapter 17, or yeah, verse 14 of Exodus, um, the Lord says, um, then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Amalek is the Amalekites. In Deuteronomy 25, um, 17 through 19, that's Deuteronomy is is at the end of the, the Pentateuch. Okay, the first five books. Uh, it's the last one in it. Verse 17 and 18. Well, I guess verse 17, 18, 19 here I have. It says, Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all your enemies around you in the land he's giving you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. Emphatically stated, do not forget. Now, God's serious about this. So, you know, when did their rest come? When did they officially get rest? Well, they have a king when they get a king here. So, 1 Samuel chapter 15. And 1 Samuel chapter 15 um, is a very important chapter. Uh, I you know, encourage you, again, it's another part of, of, of scripture to read that whole chapter to get an understanding in, uh, you know, on this, this issue here. Um, 1 Samuel 15, 1 through 3. Uh, Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you over his people Israel. So, listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they, when they, uh, when they laid, waylaid them. 
as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Uh, put to death uh, men and women, children and infants, cattle, sheep, camels, donkeys, etc. Everything. Totally wipe them out. Now this is about, oh, we're going to say um, the 11th century BC. Okay. Exile... Um, I want to say, I'm trying to think of, of the time between the prophets. I really should have my, my chart sitting out in front of me. Um, but the time of the patriarchs, like 2000 to 1500, um, the time of the judges, I think you had a long period of, of time there also, I think 400 years or so maybe. Um, and then you get your, then you get your first king. Um, and that's Saul. He gets anointed as king. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. Um, which is interesting if you know the book of Judges. But anyways, uh, the Benjaminites were not, uh, <laughs> were, not, were not the best tribe of Israel. Let's put it like that. So um, they're told to destroy everything and take nothing uh, and, and don't leave anything behind alive. But what does yeah, Saul do? He, uh, in, in verses seven through nine, Saul attacked the Amalekites, okay, uh, all the way from Havilah to Shur near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But, pa- but Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good, they, they spared. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. Now, this also includes people. You have to keep that in mind. Saul did not do what he was told. 1 Samuel 15, uh, verses 10 through 11. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry and cried out to the Lord all that night. Samuel then goes, you know, to confront Saul, who he, who Saul thinks he's done what he's asked, and he's really, really proud of himself, and you know, and to the point where he's almost separated himself from God, like completely. Um, this chapter has a lot of significance, not only for us as believers who make promises and don't keep them, but also we see the necessity and provision uh, that we have in Christ as our King and representative. Because when Samuel, in verse 13, reaches Saul, uh, Saul says to him, Hey, the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Now, when you read this chapter, some translations have some of these uh, words just a little bit different. Some of the, some of the uh, you know, pronouns are just a little bit different. Um, in my Jewish study Bible, in verses 15 and in verses 21 of... Um, of, of chapter 15. You have uh, Saul saying here um, about, like, you know, because Samuel goes to him and Samuel's all mad and, you know, why, why didn't, you know, why didn't you listen to what the Lord said and, like, do all this stuff? And he said, and Saul answered and said um, about, you know, all the oxen and, and the sheep because Samuel's like, hey, I hear all these sheep. Where, where are those from? And stuff. And, he, and Saul says, they were brought from the Amalekites for the troops spared the choicest of sheep and oxen for sacrificing to the Lord your God. Some translations have the Lord our God, but the Jewish translation from the way that Saul's be, uh, behaving seems to be more accurate. The, the Lord your God. 
And then in verse uh, 21, um, it says, uh, rough, yeah, it sort of the same thing. You know, the troops kept back the spoils from the sheep of oxen, and it's the Lord, you know, to sacrifice to the Lord your God. He says it again. I mean, it's, it's, it's repeated here. There's significance that we took this stuff, you know, twice it said of, you know, these spoils was for the Lord your God, and we kept them. And also King Agag, you know, so there's three times that, you know, these, well, we kept this, and we kept this, and we kept this, three times. So Samuel says, bring King Agag to me, takes a sword, kills him. And, and what about everything else? Well, presumably, of course, there are more Amalekites there. You know, um, he just killed King Agag. He didn't kill his whole family. Um, and, you know, there are animals as well. And we know this because later on in, in scripture, you know, David, who comes after Saul, he continues to fight with the Amalekites. And an Amalekite, when Saul died on the battlefield, um, came and reported to David about the death and lies and says that he killed um, Saul. Okay? So, now, the book of Esther here is a book about the faithfulness on God's part. And it's also a book about reversals on what has occurred. This is the tie-in between these, these two things that I've, I've talked about. Mordecai is a Benjaminite, just like Saul. Haman is called an Agite. Okay, in, in chapter 3, verse 1, the king of the Amalekites that Saul put to death was King Agag. Okay, Haman is a descendant of him, Mordecai, a descendant of you know, the uh, uh, tribe of Benjamin. You know, so, and Benjamin was, of course, you know, a tribe that was a part of Exodus. So you have the Amalekites represented and you have Israel represented, the Benjaminites represented. Haman, in the story, in an unprovoked way, attacks the Jews. And just as his ancestors did in Exodus, Mordecai and Esther lead the charge to fight against their enemies. Now, Esther asks for an extra day of fighting. And what happens on that day? You know, Haman is dead, but his sons are alive. So, in, in chapter 9, she says, If it pleases the king, Esther answered, Give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out the king's edict tomorrow also, and let Haman's ten sons be impaled on poles. Right? Wiping out the family, getting rid of the Amalekites. The Jews were given permission by King Xerxes to destroy an army, any army that came against them, and to plunder their property of their enemies, to take whatever they wanted. Okay, we see this in um, Esther chapter 8, verse 11. In chapter 9, though, three times it says this, but they laid no hand on the plunder. Every time they fought, but they laid no hand on the plunder three times. It's a reversal. Of, of what Saul did. See, God's word and his decrees are true and they will come to pass. Okay, the Amalekites were to be destroyed and nothing was to be taken. That was the command that was given to Saul. Fulfilled in Esther. This is why it's important to know the kind of the big picture history of, uh, of the scripture. Because when we first read through Esther, we're like, how does this make any sense? But now, now that you know this background here, think about what we talked about in Esther. And when you read through it, you're like, okay, even though you have this, these unfaithful people, the most lackadaisical Jews of the time, 
And God remembers his promise that he made. And when God makes a promise, when God gives a command, it will happen. It will come true. So here's the good news for us. We are the body of Christ. Your belief in Christ is evidence of this fact that you are part of the body of Christ. Okay, you have been declared righteous, according to Romans 4, 5. This declaration of righteousness, that, this, that the ungodly will be declared just. This righteousness is the forgiveness of sins, and it is put in a right position. It is made righteous. It is righteous. We've talked about this before in this program, what that means. Okay, so God declared those two things. Even if you don't see evidence of it, in your life yet, and the fulfillment, the completeness, I guess the completion of it, at the at the resurrection, okay, the bodily resurrection of, of believers. Um, that is when we will be fully and completely justified, depending on how you use that term. But God said it right now, declared it, decreed it. You are righteous, which means you're sinless, and you are positionally right. That's called justification. And it is done by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, not by your faith, but by Christ's faith, Galatians 2, 16 and 20. Because of Christ's faithfulness and because of his faith, he is like the king that listened, the good king. He is the Melchizedekian priesthood, the high, both high priest and king of, of Salem. That's who Melchizedek was. Salem later became Jerusalem. And because of this, he represents us. He is our representative of all people. Just as Mordecai and Esther, or Mordecai is a Benjaminite, and he was representative of Israel. Haman was representative of Agag, uh, the Amalekite. And so, when God says something about you, it determines that thing which he has said. When he says something is to come to pass, it will, in fact, come to pass. So, we are to remember the powerful faithfulness and reliability of God in the book of Esther. The book of Esther is seen as the answer to the fulfillment of of that proclamation with with Saul and with Moses in the Old Testament. I guess of of Moses through through Saul. This is why this is important because a lot of times when we if if you know Christians that just read the New Testament and that's all that they know. That all they know all they're doing is they're reading the ending. And a lot of times they can read it like Esther, the book of Esther and they're like this okay this is nice this is a good story. Well, how does this apply to me? And I've and I know a lot of people take the Book of Esther in many different ways, and they say, "Well, technically Esther means this, and technically Esther means that." Um, you know, well, you know, Esther is seen as like a, a provision of God who is, you know, instructing, and that's what. And, and I suppose secondarily, you can do that. I don't think that that's the primary way to understand the Book of Esther. I think you need to understand it in context of the entire Old Testament in what it's dealing with. 
okay, in this proclamation, just like in the New Testament is the, you know, proclaimed fulfillment of what was proclaimed in the Old Testament. As you read through the Old Testament, if you know your, your New Testament really, really well and you're listening to this, I would encourage you, spend this next year, you know, this, this new year, make it, you know, make it a resolution to read the Old Testament through the year, okay? You know, it's uh, 37 books, 39, sorry, 39 books. And, and read through the 39 books. And, you know, as you're doing it, a lot of stuff's going to jump out at you if you know your New Testament very well. It's going to start jumping out at you and you're going to be like, wow, I can't believe this is here. And you're going to see the connections. They're just going to pop out at you. But here's something very important to know. Those in Esther who were unfaithful, God was still faithful to his command. So how much more faithful do you think God will be to those he has grafted into himself with Christ? You are part of the body of Christ. How much more faithful is God going to be to himself who is the faithfulness itself? See, we are of Christ and we are in Christ just as he is in the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul writes this in the second letter to Timothy, and he says that this, this is trustworthy. This is a trustworthy saying. And a lot of times the way it's translated is almost in what looks like, um, you know, a, a, a poetic uh, stanza. You know, it's, it's not written completely narrative. And I think that's right because, he, see, what Paul's doing is he's quoting something that's older than the letter to Timothy itself. It's a creed. Okay, it's something that people uh, believed in that they said. And he said, "This is a trustworthy saying." Here, Second uh, Timothy, all right, um, and this is uh, it says, "If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us." If we are unfaithful, he remains faithful, since he cannot deny himself. That is the trustworthy saying of the New Testament. And if you're wondering, why would they have this creed? Why would the early church, before the Gospels were written, before many of Paul's letters were going out, this is what Christians were saying about being in Christ. If we are unfaithful, he remains faithful since he cannot deny himself and we are a part of Christ because it is by his faithfulness that we are justified, not by our own. And so as we move into this new year and we're looking forward to the promises that honestly we may not keep because it's not how we work, remember the book of Esther and what it's about. And remember that it's about our great triune God who always always keeps the promises that he makes. Hey, I want to thank you for listening to the Theology Pit. I want to thank you for um, donations that you've made. I really appreciate them. Um, you know, I want to wish you a very blessed uh, 2019, a very good, uh, happy new year, and a very Merry Christmas, because technically we still are in the Christmas season until Epiphany. Uh, the 12 days of Christmas you know, started on Christmas, and then continues until epiphany um any of my orthodox friends out there that are listening you have a merry christmas coming up very soon um and you can get a hold of me you can email me samson at samsonstick.com visit us on facebook at the theology pit visit me at samsonstick.com 
course, you know, send the donations. And I really appreciate your support. I will try and get more of these podcasts out as I am able. But I want to thank you again for listening. And it is definitely time to close down the pit. Thank you. Thank you.